Hello and welcome to this episode of the Sex Plus Health podcast. My name is Sydney and I am an intern at the American Sexual Health Association. Welcome to part two of our Disability and Sexual Health series. Today's episode is on implicit bias and ableism. To help us learn more about this topic, we have a very special guest. Nellie Galindo is the founder of Accessible Sexual Health, which is a mission-driven organization that seeks to advance access to comprehensive sex education for people with disabilities. She provides training, resources, and consultation for organizations and individuals who are seeking comprehensive sex-positive, neurodiverse, affirming, and disability-centered sexual health organization. Thank you so much for joining us, Nellie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Okay, I'm going to start us off with a question that is being asked of everybody. Um, So what are some myths about sex and disability that you think are important to discuss? Yes, there are so many. (laughs) There are a lot of different myths out there. Um, I'll, I'll kind of narrow it down to five. Um, the first one, which I think is kind of the, the biggest or most prevailing myth is just that people, um, with disabilities, and this could be anyone with any type of disability, but I typically see this applied more to individuals with, um, cognitive or severe physical disabilities is simply that they're not interested in sex or that they're asexual. They don't have a sex drive. Um, and that's not true. I mean, there are certainly are folks out there with different levels of libido, and there are um, folks who identify as asexual, but that's not the vast majority of people with disabilities. Just like the general population, you know, we all have a sexuality, we're all born with a sexuality, and the vast majority of us are practicing that sexuality in, in some way, shape, or form. Um, I think the next biggest myth that I hear pretty frequently, and again, I think this tends to err um, more on the side of individuals with an intellectual disability or a cognitive disability, is that they're not able to consent to sexual activity. Um, So we tend to automatically assume that if somebody um, has some type of deficiency with their reasoning or judgment, that it automatically means they cannot consent or they cannot, you know, actively consent to any type of sexual activity. And that's not always the case. Um, It can really vary. It's a really wide spectrum of, you know, I may not be able to um, be able to manage my money or I might have a lot of difficulty managing my finances, but I absolutely can understand a sexual relationship or I absolutely can understand um, when someone might be trying to coerce me. or I may understand a sexual relationship, but I may have trouble understanding when someone's trying to coerce me. So there's really a, a large spectrum there, but the presence of a disability by itself, especially a cognitive disability by itself, does not automatically mean that that person cannot consent to sexual activity. The third um, common myth that I hear and see pretty often is that disabled people cannot or should not become parents. Um, This has a long legacy of, um, you know, individuals working with disabilities who are then calling Child Protective Services, 
there have been instances of individuals with intellectual disabilities, especially having their children taken from them after birth or closely after birth. Um, and I'll often just see a lot of prejudice online where there might be a video of a woman in a wheelchair who has a toddler and you'll see people in the comment section saying, oh, she can't take care of a baby. Why is she taking care of a baby? Like who let her have kids? Right. So there's a common prevalent belief that if you have some type of disability that you should not either be having children because you cannot care for them adequately or there's often a fear that you'll pass it down to your child. Um, and that has a lot of underlying ableism that I'm sure we'll talk about later, too. Um, I think another common myth is that we don't think about people with disabilities being part of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, I think there tends to be the assumption of heterosexism or heteronormativity when we're thinking about people with disabilities. But especially, you know, for me as a sex educator um, and for sex educators in general, it's really important to remember that there are people with disabilities in the LGBTQ plus population. And when it comes to things like preventing HIV and preventing other types of STIs and other, um, you know, sexual and reproductive health issues, we want to make sure that we are being um, LGBTQ inclusive with people with disabilities as well. Um, and the last one, which is a big one, and I think we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth, um, there tends to be this, this myth, this thought that disabled people are not sexy, they're not sexually desirable, and so therefore they're not at risk of sexual assault. And this is absolutely not the case, unfortunately. Um, and I think we see this outside of the disability community, right? Um, if someone does, um, if they are the victim of sexual assault, we think, oh, well, what were they wearing? You know, were they wearing tight clothing or loose clothing? Or were they doing something or saying something sexy that, that made them at risk? And that's not true. Like, we know that that's not true. Um, and I see this happen with people with disabilities a lot, where we think, oh, well, they're not conventionally attractive or they're they're not um, a sex figure or sexy so we don't have to worry about that person being sexually assaulted and sexual assault has nothing to do with any of that right sexual assault has to do with power and control over another person and that's where we see a lot of risk for sexual abuse especially within the disability population Okay, since you brought the topic of sexual abuse up, is there anything that you think needs to be done to address this crisis other than what the seemingly obvious of raising awareness? Yeah, um, and I think unfortunately, we're kind of still at a point where we are raising a lot of awareness. Um, you know, depending on the study you look at and depending on the subpopulation of disability that you're looking at, you could see an abuse rate between three or 12 times higher than um, the national average. Um, you know, typically women tend to be at a higher risk. Um, people who have disabilities that are affecting their speech or cognition tend to be at a much higher risk. Um, and unfortunately, I think that there tends to be a cycle where you know something happens in the news or something comes out about how prevalent um, sexual assault is, how much of an epidemic it is, and there's a lot of, you know, hoopla around it, and then it kind of dies off, right? It dies off with the news cycle. And unfortunately, I think 
a lot of that has to do with some of the ableism that we carry in society where, you know, if I'm not actively seeing people with disabilities as part of my community, I'm not thinking about them and therefore I'm not considering their needs when it comes to public policy, when it comes to um, inclusion within existing programs that help survivors of sexual assault or survivors of domestic violence. So, and, and that's actually one of the biggest protective factors is actively being included in your community, having people around you who are safe, having a circle of support, having friends, um, having individuals outside of your household who know what's going on with your life and who you can turn to if something does happen because individuals with disabilities tend to be segregated a lot, even to this day. And they tend to have much smaller um, social circles that increases their risk dramatically. Yeah, I definitely remember growing up and having, you know, there were classes for people with disabilities and then there was the regular classes and mm-hmm. very little did they interact with each other. Yes. Oh, same. Um, it was the same thing for me. Like mm-hmm. very little. Um, and I think that that is very important to have the integration and inclusion just with something as simple and common as school Mm -hmm. so from a young age having kids and young adults be more aware of the people with disabilities that are in their community that are in their neighborhood their school um i think that can go a long way yep all right so we're gonna go on to the next question um implicit bias refers to attitudes prejudices and judgments that we unconsciously hold about people or groups. What are some ways that implicit bias impacts people with disabilities surrounding sexuality and sexual health? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think you bring up a good point in, you know, growing up, if we're not actively seeing people with disabilities as part of our communities, then we're not, um, again, we're not actively thinking of individuals as individuals. They're not in the forefront of our minds. And so I see a lot of um, implicit ableism come up, um, especially within providers, healthcare providers, or even disability service providers. Um, And, you know, like you mentioned, a lot of it is unconscious. It's not actively trying to harm someone or hurt someone. Um, But even the idea of, oh, I didn't even think about hosting this party in a space that was accessible to wheelchairs. (laughs) Or, oh, I didn't realize that um, when we were planning this community health event, that there might be folks with um, cognitive disabilities who have difficulty understanding our health materials. I didn't think to include it in plain language, or I didn't think to include it in Braille to include folks who are blind. So a lot of the things that we just miss because we're not used to seeing those things out in public anyway, um, it kind of perpetuates itself, right? We're just continually not seeing spaces where people with disabilities are actively being included in. 
And so that's continuing to um, create this idea that, oh, well, they must have their own space or they must have their own program. A lot of times they don't. Um, it's also illegal. Everything needs to be made accessible if it's a public, um, you know, public health event or something that's a private business, right? Like it, it all has to be made accessible to people with disabilities. Um, but that implicit bias of, oh, well, I'm not even seeing them. I'm not even thinking that they're here. Um, it often just leads to more um, exclusion. Yeah, I really do think also a lot of people automatically think of like, is the space physically accessible when there's so many other aspects of accessibility that I think people don't always, that's not the first thing that comes to their mind. The first thing that comes to their mind is like, is there an elevator? And mm -hmm. um, if it's like not on the first floor and if there's stairs, is there a ramp? Yeah. But I think there's so much more to accessibility than just the physical space. Absolutely. It's your policies. It's how you communicate. Um, <laughs> it's digital. Like, is your website accessible? right? You might have the most physically accessible, beautiful building in the world, but if people can't find you on the internet because <laughs> their screen reader doesn't work with your website, I mean, you miss out on that. So yeah, there's a lot that goes into accessibility beyond just the physical environment, for sure. Um, we've touched on ableism earlier, um, but how does ableism play a role in the sexual health and health care of people with disabilities? Yeah, um, and just just in case folks aren't familiar with the term, I, it's becoming more familiar, and I'm really mm -hmm. happy for that. But just in case, um, ableism just refers to discrimination of people with disabilities, and it's typically in favor of able-bodied people. Um, and the way we kind of see this show up a lot, especially within healthcare, um, similar to implicit bias, it often just comes back to assumptions. Um, many medical providers again, are, are assuming that myth that individuals with disabilities are not sexual, um, that they can't understand sex or they cannot consent to sex. And so things like um, just asking about sexual history often get missed. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Crip Camp. Um, it's a great documentary on Netflix. It's about um, a camp that was for individuals with disabilities back in the 60s and 70s. And it was kind of the birthplace of a lot of the different um, disability rights movement um, individuals who kind of led that space. Um, it's a great documentary. I highly recommend it. Um, one of the individuals in that movie um, was a woman who had cerebral palsy. Um, it very highly affected her speech. Um, so she spoke very slowly and it was very um, muddled. She used a power chair. Um, and she tells a story of how she was having a lot of cramping and she was um, almost feeling like she was having a UTI. And every time she went to the doctor, that's just what they um, diagnosed her with. They said, oh, you have a UTI, you have a UTI. And nothing was helping it go away. And finally, um, someone tested her for chlamydia and she tested positive. And she said, this went on for months and no one even thought to ask me if I was sexually active. And she was. And so, again, that kind of um, that assumption, that myth is an ableist one. It's, it's one that doctors are not thinking of. And a lot of it, I think, comes back to um, we just don't have good training. We don't really talk about 
this the specific needs of the disabled community and how how these myths are interacting with how they're being treated in a medical setting. Um, there's actually another example of this um, from a 2022 article in the New York Times um, where they interviewed researchers who had granted um, anonymity to this focus group of physicians. And many of these physicians um, explicitly said, well, I don't want to work with patients with disabilities. Um, they said that or they had a lot of complaints about um, having to accommodate physical disabilities. A couple of them indicated that they would rather that individual go to a quote unquote special clinic than come to their clinic. They complained about losing money on sign language interpreters, right? Just a lot of things were coming out in this research study. And what was really interesting about the study is that the lead researcher was a woman with a disability and she was experiencing a lot of um, biases and prejudices and just poor treatment from her care providers. And so she said, well, I just need to interview these doctors and kind of figure out what's going on. Why, you know, why is there such poor treatment? Um, and so those, those assumptions and those biases, they really end up leaving people with disabilities just receiving very subpar care. That's when we see, you know, STIs getting missed. That's where we see, you know, um, evidence of sexual abuse getting missed, right? And I mean, at the best, the subpart care is just annoying, but at the worst, it can be life-threatening. Um, so we're really putting individuals with disabilities in what I think is a terrible amount of risk and danger. Um, that's either going to lead to more mor morbidity or early death, to, to be frank. Yeah, I definitely agree about the providers and training. Um, I read a study that was, a, it's a small study with just around 300 OBGYNs, and they found that only 17% of OBGYNs had received any information or training on the provision of healthcare to women with disabilities. Yes. And eight, over 80% believed that women with disabilities are less likely to receive comprehensive reproductive healthcare, not because they we're going to be providing less comprehensive care, but that they didn't know how to provide comprehensive health care. And right. it was like, it's not necessarily their fault, but they, yeah, so they didn't know how to pro provide the comprehensive health care, which made them believe that, which is true, that they're less likely to receive comprehensive health care. Oh, yeah. And, and I do think the majority of doctors and providers out there, like, I don't want anybody listening to this to think like, oh, all healthcare providers are terrible to people with disabilities, because that's not true. Um, but yeah, it's really just that lack of access to their training and their ability to um, skill up in these areas and get the types of knowledge and training that they need. Um, because, I mean, doctors come into the profession to, to help people. Um, but yes, there, there's so little of that made available. I, very few doctors are trained during medical school. Um, there's very little continuing education that happens that doctors can receive um, to support um, people with disabilities. Um, and even in a lot of um, physical environments, doctors' offices don't have accessible equipment. Um, so I may want to be able to provide a pelvic exam to a woman who uses a wheelchair, but I can't physically get her up onto the doctor's table that's three feet off the floor, right? So I do think that there is a lot of good intent out there, but 
it's a whole mess of, you know, do we have the right training? Do we have the right equipment? Do we have the accommodations we need? Um, and that's, you know, what I'm hoping to solve at least. Yeah. Um, so we often hear that the reproductive justice and disability justice movements are separate from each other. Um, how are these movements intertwined and how can these movements work together? Yeah, so the reproductive justice movement, it really kind of focuses on four things, right? So mm -hmm. the first is just that you have the human right to maintain your personal bodily autonomy. You have the right to have children. You have the right to not have children. And you have the right to raise your children in a safe, sustainable community. Yeah, so we have these like kind of four main tenets of reproductive justice. But when we look at the disability justice movement, um, the right to bodily autonomy and self-determination, that's huge. That's, I think, is like the basis of the, the disability rights movement. There's a great um, phrase um, among a lot of disability rights activists, nothing about us without us, right? Like policies, you know, laws, um, anything out there, nothing should be um, made about us without our input, without having people with disabilities at the table. Um, so that right to autonomy, self-determination, um, that's a big similarity that both of these movements have. Um, alongside the right to raise your children in a safe and healthy environment, just like the myths we were talking about earlier with parenting. Um, that's a huge one in the disability community right now. There's a lot of advocacy going on around making sure that um, parents with disabilities are supported. Um, the right to access health care free from political influence or stigmatization, just like what we've been talking about, right, with physicians and providers, um, and also just that right to community care. So the right to be able to live in the community of your choice, to have those around you um, be able to support you and you be able to support them. So really building an environment where we're caring for each other. I think that's a huge tenet in both of these movements as well. Yes, I definitely agree. I think I've read plenty of articles, especially in preparation for this, but also separately about how these um, movements are really intertwined and because mm -hmm. a lot of the tenants are very similar. Yeah. Bodily autonomy, being able to make decisions for yourself, mm -hmm. being able to um, be a parent if you want to be a parent and having those resources available. Yep. I think it definitely, like you said, seen in like the news and stuff about people with disabilities getting child protective services called on them, getting their um, kids taken away from them and things like involuntary sterilization. So they don't even get the choice. Yes. Um, so if somebody, because yeah. it is still legal in the U.S. in plenty of states to sterilize somebody with a disability without their consent. Um, and so I think that that also really um, intertwines the disability rights and justice framework with reproductive justice because the reproductive justice movement is very much against involuntarily sterilizing anybody. Um, so I think that's another aspect of where they can really intertwine and there can hopefully um, be some momentum to get some of those laws um, banned, overturned, what's the <laughs> right word? Ah, 
yeah, I don't know. And let's just ban it all. Let's change it all. Let's, let's make it, it so that it's like all bodily autonomy focused. Um, yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because yes, the the history of involuntary sterilization in this country is awful. Um, to an extent, it's continuing today, and people with disabilities, especially people with disabilities who are also people of color and who are women were vastly, vastly um, affected more than, than other groups. So uh, that could be a whole other podcast. (laughs) Is there any information on STIs among disabled people? What can we do with this information? Because you mentioned it earlier about the woman in that documentary that had chlamydia but nobody thought to ask her if she was sexually active. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, in my own research, I wasn't able to find a lot in this area, mm-hmm. um, which that's a prime example of ableism in our society, <laughs> right? Um, mm-hmm. Especially within our research institutions, mm-hmm. we're not often looking at disability as its own demographic. Um, mm-hmm. So I wasn't able to find a lot, but I did find a couple tidbits here and there. Um and overarchingly, yes, like the risk is a bit greater for people with disabilities, but it seems to depend a little bit more on the type of disability you have. Um, so there is actually a study from earlier this year, from March of 2023, from the American Journal of Preventative Medicine, and they did find that the prevalence of STIs were more than twice as high for women of reproductive age who had cognitive disabilities or sensory disabilities. So that's specifically what they found within their study population. Um, Outside of the US, there was a Canadian study done last year on men and women with disabilities. And they found that both men and women with any type of disability were more likely to report the diagnosis of an STI. So just as a general trend, they were more, um, more at risk. And I did find one study from 2019 that showed that individuals with IDD were just as likely, and I apologize, IDD is intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, they Their study found that they were just as likely or less likely to experience an STI. But when I looked at the data, they were only including individuals who had private health insurance. And that was a little bit of a red flag for me because Mm -hmm. a lot of individuals with IDD are on some type of public assistance like Medicaid. And so I would just take that with a grain of salt. Regardless, though, I think what this indicates is that, you know, especially as healthcare providers, as sexuality educators, um, we just have to assume that the risk is there and it's going to be just as prevalent or more prevalent um, for people with disabilities as it is for the general population. Um, So we always want to do the same screening. We always want to do the same types of treatment and assessment for STIs um, and the same type of education that we would with anyone else. Those studies show that there is at least um, the same risk or an increased risk. Um, But I also think it's important with the ableism and uh, implicit bias about um, sexuality and do people with disabilities, are they sexually active? And, um, And I think since there is this belief that or myth that people have that people with disabilities can't or don't have sex, I think it also increases the risk of untreated 
STS. And then they could pass that on to other people and then it would create more of a um, a ripple effect. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That's the thing, right, is it's not just affecting that one individual, it's affecting any future partners that they're having as well. Nellie, could you let people know how they can connect with you on social media or your website? And we will also put your information in the episode description. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, So you can contact me via my website. It's www.accessiblesexualhealth.com. You can email me at info at accessiblesexualhealth.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, um, just at accessiblesexualhealth. So you can find me all those different ways. And I love talking to people. I do consultation and training and education. So feel free to shoot me an email and we can chat. Thank you so much. And thank you for everyone for listening.